to be with y'all this morning. My name is Walker Bird. I'm on staff here at Oak Mountain. I have the pleasure of working with our young professionals. So I guess this is like a youth movement Sunday of sorts between the youth house band and Braxton and Sue and myself and, um, uh, hello. and Bob. <laughs> Bob. <laughs> You're always a part of the youth movement. Um, anyway, um, I'll be another one in the long line of those who are grateful that both Dax and PD are on staff here. Selfishly, it means that I'm no longer the new guy on staff. Uh, My wife, Sarah, and I have been around Oak Mountain for the last nine months. We're really grateful to be in church family with you guys. Uh, I think one of the first things that we noticed walking through the doors is that you all, the power of the Spirit, because of Jesus, have managed to familify what is a really big church. And that's... Remarkable, and we're really grateful to get to worship with you guys to get to call Oak Mountain home. Uh, I do need to address one thing that might be in your heads. Yes, there is a certain VBS video. Uh, No, I can either confirm or deny that that was me. Uh, If you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's awesome. Please don't go find it. (laughs) I hope it never sees a lot of day again. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue in our study of the one another's, one another's of the New Testament. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 12, we're going to camp out in one verse this morning, and we're going to chat about some of its implications for us as believers, us as a church body, and us as lights to the watching world. Specifically, we're going to look at verse 16 in Romans 12, where Paul calls us to live in harmony with one another. For a lot of us, we think of the word harmony, our mind runs to music. Now, I'm, I'm playing outside of my expertise when I talk about this here, but my understanding is that in music theory, a harmony is when two or more notes are pieced together simultaneously. And there's, there's this audible difference that happens when the notes are played together versus when they're played independently and separately. Harmonies can give these notes depth and color and dimension that they don't have when they're played individually. My favorite band in the world is a band called Need to Breathe. And if you're not familiar with them, picture folk, music, country, rock and roll, and barbershop quartet all kind of combined into one. And that's what they are. they, they have this, this habit at the end of the concerts, often for the encore, where they'll come back on stage, they'll unplug their instruments, and they'll, make, and they'll step towards the crowd. Sometimes they'll actually get right in the middle of the crowd. And the only ground rule is that the crowd has to be really quiet so that you can hear the music that's being played. And because their instruments are unplugged, what moves the song along is their harmonies. It's almost like, because of the harmonies, the lyrics linger a little longer, the lyrics mean a little more, and they pack more of a punch when they sing them. Now, 
understand this, each member of the band is remarkably gifted. They're musically really, really sharp. But there's something of their harmonies that when they're together, they're better than the sum of their parts. It's almost like one plus one plus one plus one equals ten. And, and I think the Bible talks about us living in harmony in the same way. Paul understands this, and he's calling us to harmony with one another right here in verse 16. And that's harmony, and that's understanding that, that we're living in such a way that enriches or complements each other as a connected whole. And so because of the gospel, because of Jesus, when we as believers, when we as the church live in harmony with one another, it's almost like one plus one plus one plus one equals ten. The shadow side of that reality is that if we don't live into our, our harmonious identity in the gospel, we actually hurt our brothers and sisters. We actually ruin our witness to the rest of the world. We actually sin against our heavenly father. A mark of our holiness that's our being set apart from the rest of the world is our harmonious living. But on the flip side, our disharmony, our disunity makes us blend in with the rest of the world. Because if we're honest, the world's a, not a very harmonious place. If we remember back a few weeks ago when Bob taught out of the same chapter of Romans 12 when he walked us through honoring one another. Romans 12 represents this big hinge in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. The first 11 chapters, he's articulated, what is the gospel? What is my new identity in Jesus? And here in chapter 12 is the hinge. Now, okay, in light of all of that, so what? What does it mean? How am I to live? Bob called these responsibilities of grace. And the call to live in harmony with one another is one of these responsibilities of grace. That because of what is true of us in Jesus, we are enabled by the power of the Spirit to live in harmony with one another. So if you're able, I'd invite you to stand out of reverence for God's words. Uh, I, I am going to take a page out of the esteemed Bob Flayhart's playbook for a second, and we're going to read from four different translations because I think the nuances that you see in each one of those help round out our understanding of what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us this morning. So I'll begin with the ESV. It says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. NIV, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. NASB, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. And the CSB, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Instead, associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So as you can see, there's some different approaches that the translators take, but I think these varied approaches help us understand what's happening here. This is, this is God's word, and he's given it to us because he loves us, and he wants us to see that living in harmony with one another matters, both for God's glory and for our good. Pray with me. Father God, we 
ask you to bless the reading and teaching of your word. God, may it not return void spirit. Do what only you can do in this time and apply these words to our hearts. Be with us now, we pray. It's in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So we're, so we're going to chat for a little bit of what I'll call the shape of harmony, or maybe put differently, the three ingredients to harmonious living. So number one, live in harmony with one another by seeking humility. So the primary command here in verse 16 is to live in harmony with one another. But Paul provides us with a few tenets to help us understand practically, hey, what does this mean? What does this look like? And one of those ingredients is the necessity, the absolute necessity of humility. Paul very clearly warns us that pride and harmonious living are mutually exclusive. They cannot coexist. The ESV translation says don't be haughty, don't be wise in your own eyes. The NIV says don't be proud, don't be conceited. And and those other two translate some of those similarly. So it's like pride is set up as the kryptonite to our living in harmony with one another. You cannot have both at the same time. Pride actually sows disharmony and disunity. As you read the Bible, you'll notice this theme of how God actually condemns and opposes the proud. It's all over the Bible. Once you start to realize that you won't be able to stop, Psalm 138, he, the Lord, regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 8, pride and arrogance, I, the Lord, hate. James 4, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus himself doesn't pull any punches when he addresses the pride of the Pharisees. If you read Matthew chapter 23, almost the entire chapter is Jesus' strong rebuke of the pride of the Pharisees. The Bible uses these words like haughty, pride, conceit, puffed up to convey the idea that the prideful love, those who are prideful, they love for things to be about themselves and only themselves. In his book titled The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Pastor Tim Keller, and by the way, I don't know if I can more strongly commend a book to you than this one on this topic, but uh, in, in his book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, Tim, Tim Keller helpfully paints the word picture behind the way the Bible talks about pride. He uses this idea of overinflated, swollen, distended beyond its proper size. For some reason, my mind runs to the pufferfish in Nemo named Bloat, that every time he feels threatened, he blows up. And I think there's actually something kind of instructive about that that we can learn from. But nonetheless, think about how swollen, overinflated, or bloated would play out in a harmony. It's not not very well, right? My first exposure to school musicals was probably second or third grade in elementary school, which you parents know that's basically just all the kids screaming the lyrics of the songs together. But I, in this particular moment, felt uniquely empowered because the night before, we had watched American Idol in my house. And so we had seen all of the training that had gone in for these musicians to try to win the title of American Idol. We'd watch them do these vocal inflections and watch them do these vocal runs to make their voice stand out above the rest. 
So naturally, I resolved to do the exact same thing. So in our rehearsal that day, I'm singing, and I can watch as the music teacher is trying to figure out what is happening. <laughs> and finally, she realizes, and she whips her head towards me, and she gives me one of these, like, stop. And honestly, if, if she was brutally honest, she would have said, hey, Walker, please just don't sing, period, because you can't. But what I was doing is I was overinflating my voice. And my voice was overshadowing the desired harmony that our teacher wanted. Our pride chokes out our hope for harmonious living because it's too preoccupied with ourselves to see anything else. And I think that there's actually some sneaky ways that pride can rear its ugly head into our lives. Yes, there is the very apparent puff out your chest, look down your nose at somebody else and portray yourself as better than them. But I, I think that the verse right before ours in Romans 12 is actually a quick litmus test of sorts. If you read verse 15, it says, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's interesting to see the pattern that plays out in that verse because the weeping with those who weep, I think maybe comes more easily and natural to us because Gosh, if somebody has a tragedy, like you're going to move towards that person and you're going to want to be with that person and be in it with them. The rejoicing with those who rejoice, I think, is a little tougher. Think about what, what happens in your head when you deeply long for marriage and it's another couple in our church who announces their engagement. What do you say under your breath when it's, Somebody else's kid who gets the recognition, who gets the award, not yours. What's the narrative playing out when someone else in your life group has something really awesome happen to them and is blessed by the Lord and it's not you? Now, I hope I'm not coming across this morning as finger-wagging. I, I, I recognize that there could be many, a myriad of nuances and circumstances that make those situations particularly painful. However, I do think that Paul is suggesting here that when our ego is central, when our pride is central to who we are, there can be no room for rejoicing with those who rejoice. There is no room for living in harmony with one another. Pride actually crowds out harmony because pride is by nature competitive. But it's when Jesus is central, humility comes supernaturally. And actually what God asks of us, he provides to us through the work of the Spirit in us. C.S. Lewis explains it this way, pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud, of, are, are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. If everyone else becomes equally rich or equally clever or equally good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Holy Spirit, through Paul, is reiterating this warning about our pride because our unity, our harmony, 
is meant to be the thing that showcases the sweetness, the goodness, the beauty, and the truthfulness of the gospel to the rest of the world. Jesus believes this so much that he actually prays for our unity. If you listen to his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 at the end of his life, he says, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they, us, may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me that they, us, may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. So if we're going to be lights to the rest of the world, if we're going to showcase the beauty and the goodness and the richness and the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus to the rest of the world, we cannot be prideful. So I would ask you, would you consider yourself to be a humble person? Maybe a, a better question might be, would the people in your life consider you to be a humble person? And the great thing about humility is that if your answer to one of those two questions was, gosh, maybe not, it's the first step. Realizing is the first step. Being able to admit that, gosh, I might be wrong. I might be a prideful person. That's actually the first step to putting pride to death. If that's you, repent. God is lovingly and graciously calling you back to himself. And he delights to meet you in those moments of repentance. Because he actually wants to change your heart and he will. He wants to help you to more and more rely on him and him alone. He wants to develop a spirit of humility in you. So ask him. Come to him. Father, help me be a humble person. And this is actually what it means for us to live in harmony with one another by seeking humility. It starts here. True gospel humility means I stop putting myself at the center of every experience every conversation, every circumstance. Instead, I move towards Jesus. True gospel humility means I'm able to listen to the wisdom of others. I'm not always the expert. I'm not the end-all, be-all. True gospel humility looks like loving to praise and exalt other people when good things happen to them or when they do well. True gospel humility recognizes that Jesus is everything. And true gospel humility leads us to harmonious living. That's number one. Number two, live in harmony with one another by seeing people. By seeing people. If you read right in the middle of verse 16, there's this command to associate with the lowly or associate with the humble and this is another interesting ingredient for our, our harmonious living that Paul throws in there. But it begs the question, why? Why does he include this phrase in this verse? I actually think that this is where the rubber meets the road for our living 
in harmony with one another. We have to be reminded to associate with the lowly. Because this fundamentally cuts against the grain of our culture. It could not be more contrary to the way our society works. Our society is consumed with rank, prestige, power, appearance. I mean, think about some of the first questions that you ask somebody when you meet them. You shake hands, you trade names. Almost immediately, what do you do? What neighborhood do you live in? What school do you go to? What sorority are you in? Undergirding each of those questions is a sense that I'm sizing that person up to see where they rank against me in terms of their social status, their bank account, their success in life. And the beauty, the enticing thing about the gospel is that it does the exact opposite. The gospel takes this and it turns it on its head. Francis Schaeffer actually has a whole collection of sermons all alluding to the idea that in God's economy, there are no little people. In God's economy, he sees all his children. In a world that's consumed with competition, where it's really hard for us to see the lowly, and it's hard for us to consider the lowly, in God's economy, the score has been settled. Competition's been won. The verdict's in. And the truth is that there's a level ground at the, at the cross. There's no social hierarchy in the church. None. There's no haves and have-nots in the church. There's no cool and not cool in the church. There's no those people in the church. And this naturally flows out of our discussion about pride and humility. The fact of the matter is that if you're prideful, you're going to draw distinctions. If you're prideful, you're going to draw boundary lines. If you're prideful, you're going to create a social hierarchy in your head. And doing these things, it's like cutting your nose off to spite your face. You, th you think that what you're doing is being helpful to yourself, but in reality, it's poison to your living in harmony with one another. And it's poison to the church's witness. It's actually poison to yourself. Because in the flourishing of your brothers and sisters, in the flourishing of the church, you find your own. There's the story in the gospel accounts where Jesus is invited over to the house of Simon the Pharisee for dinner. So if you remember the relationship that Jesus has with the Pharisees, it's not always a great one. The Pharisees are uh, jealous that this new rabbi teacher is gathering a crowd and that he's teaching something that's a little different than what they've been teaching. He's stealing some of their spotlight. And this particular interaction comes earlier in the ministry of Jesus as the Pharisees are still trying to get a sense of who is this Jesus guy and what's he about? And Simon gets the first crack at Jesus. Hey, Jesus, come to my house, let's eat dinner. What he's really doing is he's sizing him up. He's trying to report back to his Pharisee cronies about what he finds out. But what happens at dinner is unexpected. This uninvited guest bursts onto the scene. This woman who is introduced to us in the passage as a woman of the city and a sinner so you can fill in the blanks as to what that 
might mean. But she makes this scene at Jesus' feet as he's reclining at the table. She breaks this jar of alabaster ointment. She's weeping. She's making a scene. She's washing his face with her hair. And as this is playing out, Simon, the Pharisee, mutters under his breath, if this man were a prophet, he would know. He would know what sort of woman this is and who it is that's touching him, for she is a sinner. Translation, there is no world in which that woman would get close to me, associate with me, much less touch me. We can, why would we even be in the same room together? Jesus must not be all he's cracked up to be. He would know. He should know. He would know better than this. Jesus senses what's going on in Simon's heart. He proceeds to tell a parable about forgiveness to Simon. And then he does something profound. He turns and he looks at the woman. But he's talking to Simon. He's saying, he says, Simon, do you see her? Simon, do you really see her? Do you see her or do you just see her sins? Simon, do you see her or do you see all the things that she's done? Simon, do you see her or just see that she's dirty? Simon, do you see her heart? You see, her entire life, this sinful woman's identity had been synonymous with the things that she had done, with her sins. Everywhere she had been, people saw her, and they immediately look away. Because all they see, sin, dirty, unclean, not for me. And for the first time in her life, somebody sees her and moves towards her. All other people saw were acts on the surface. They never saw her heart. They never got up close. Jesus is the first person to really see this woman. And Jesus is impressing on Simon that, Simon, you are too caught up in your own pride to see what she's become. You're too caught up in seeing her sin and only her sin that you can't see how beautiful she really is. And this isn't a unique occurrence for Jesus. All throughout his ministry, he sees people He sees all of them. He sees their background. He sees their beauties. He sees their bruises. And he loves them. He moves towards them and he loves them. And often these are the people that are the lowly, the downtrodden, the outcast, the forgotten, the people on the fringes, the people on the outsides. Yet Jesus moves towards them. And Romans 12 points us back to this reality as grounding for our harmonious living. Paul is reminding us that our harmony, our living in harmony with with one another, is not dependent upon superficial identifiers. It's not dependent on who you voted for. It's not dependent on your background. It's not dependent on your bank account. It's not dependent on what neighborhood you live in. It's not dependent on what football team you root for. Those things are fragile. They will not stand up against the weight of conflict or against the weight of being wronged. Those things are not enough to endure the highs and lows of life together in a community like this. 
But Jesus is. He is what will sustain through highs and lows of life together. He is what produces harmony in a church and believers. So if you interact with somebody that you sit next to at church and you find out their political views and it surprises you, who cares? If you find out somebody's background in your life group and it's shocking to you, oh my gosh, how could I be in church with this person? Who cares? You have Jesus. He's all you need. Some of my favorite interactions in my life have been when I've been uh, maybe out at lunch or at coffee with a friend and another friend walks up and kind of casts a glance of suspicion and then after the fact I get a text message or a phone call or um, I might see that person and that person in almost an accusatory kind of way is like, how do you know that person? How did y'all become friends? And what they're really asking is like, in what universe could you two associate with one another? It's my favorite thing to say, my church, Jesus, is a believer. Our associating with the lowly, really seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ, is actually a testimony to the watching world that Christ is actually who he says that he is. That he has actually done what he's said that he's done. So briefly, here's two diagnostic questions for you. Do you see people... Or do you just see your people? And hear me, it's not a bad thing to have friends. It's not a bad thing to be in community with people. It's not a bad thing to do life with people. But what I'm asking is, are you seeing your people at the expense of seeing the rest? Because I think what what Paul is actually calling us to here in Romans 12 is that your people are actually the 2,400 plus people that call Oak Mountain home. Question number two, is there anybody in your life who you really love that can give you nothing in return? Their friendship doesn't increase your street cred. Their friendship doesn't help with business connections. Their friendship doesn't make you look good. Is there anybody in your life who you really love that can give you nothing in return? So number one, live in harmony with one another by seeking humility. Number two, by seeing people. And number three, live in harmony with one another by savoring Christ. This is really the prerequisite for the things that we've talked about so far. When the NASB translates this verse, be of the same mind towards one another, what it's talking about, it's talking about savoring Jesus. Being of the same mind towards one another points us back to the first 11 chapters of Romans where Paul works to show us the richness of the gospel and the beauty of salvation that's found in Jesus. And being of the same mind towards one another knows that because we're aligned on the most important things, we don't have to be aligned on everything. This is where we get that phrase, unity, not uniformity. The truth of the matter is that the more that we press into the gospel, the more it will take root in our hearts. The more we see Jesus, the more the Spirit will work to conform us into his image. The more and more we understand the grace of Jesus Christ, the more humble people 
we will become. You see, the opposite of pride is not actually humility. The opposite of pride is faith in Christ. Think about the way that we've talked about faith in Christ up here from up front. We've talked about transferring your trust from yourself to trusting in Jesus. So if I'm trusting in myself, I'm trying to pump myself up. I'm prideful. I'm all about myself. But if I trust in Christ, there is no room for me to try to pump myself up. Because the truth of the matter is that trusting in Christ is what produces true humility. Jesus himself is the truest embodiment of humility. If you know Jesus, you know humility. Think about Philippians 2. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But not only has Christ humbled himself for you, he actually sees you in the way that you're called to see people. See, Christ didn't deem you too lowly to be saved. In Jesus' death, he purchases you back into his family, but there was nothing that merited that in the first place. There was nothing in you that was redeeming, nothing in you that would have naturally drawn him to you, yet he moves towards you. He loves you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, he was actually willing to be put out of harmony with his father so that you could be welcomed into the perfect harmony that he has with his father. That's a reality that will change us. It's in coming to this realization that we've become inextricably bound to Jesus Christ as our brother and we've been welcomed into the harmony with our heavenly father Jesus, he shares this perfect harmony with us. And it's that reality that springboards us into harmonious living with one another. Because Jesus has died so that you might live in harmony with your brothers and sisters as well. It's not an individualistic thing. He's put you in community with other brothers and sisters. I want you to look around for a second. Look at, look at everybody in this room. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. You are inextricably bound to these people. You belong here. God has purposefully placed you here with these exact people in this church in this time. It's actually in their flourishing that you will find your own. In the harmony of the church, you will find your own harmony. And that's not saying that you have to be friends with everybody, but it is saying that you're family, that everybody in here is family. And that's family in the best, richest, fullest sense of the word. There's one interaction that has stuck with me the most as we've left our trip in Birmingham, England. If you didn't know, we took a group of young professionals to partner with one of our ministry partners called Grace Church in Birmingham, England, and there was one night where we were in the home of an English family. We were chatting about the differences in our Birmingham and their Birmingham. And it was, 
there was such a stark contrast when they would tell us, hey, you know, 2% of the UK is Christian as we would define Christian. Ooh, that's shocking. They were equally as shocked when we would tell them, hey, in our Birmingham, there's literally a church on every corner. And the husband of the family said something uh, that has stuck with me and as I processed, I think summarizes this really well. He says, wow, that is certainly not the case here. We have to huddle together for warmth. Translation, because there are so few Christians in Birmingham, England, we genuinely need one another. We have to lean in together. We have to be in each other's corners. We have to be family for one another because some of our families want nothing to do with us. We have to live in harmony with one another because what else do we have? And it's fascinating to watch as their social standing goes way down when they become a believer. People look at them like, you believe what? We've tried that already. Our country's tried that. It didn't work. So they have to move towards each other in humility. They have to see each other as Jesus sees them. They have to savor Christ. And as we've left, that's been the thing that's impacted me the most because we got a glimpse of a beautiful, harmonious church. Because of their living in harmony with one another, even though there weren't many of them, it really was like one plus one plus one plus one equal 10. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for your plan of salvation that includes our brothers and sisters in Christ. That you have, in your providence, placed us here in this church with these people to do life with each other. God, what a blessing. We pray, God, that we would learn what it looks like to move towards one another in humility, to see each other the way that you see us. Most importantly, God, we pray that we would savor the gospel of Jesus, that in him we have everything we could want. We love you. We pray all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks, Walker. And uh, what a privilege to be part of a church where we're seeing God raise up uh, younger men for the ministry and for us to be able to give them a chance uh, to practice and hone their preaching skills and to, to learn to minister to God's people. So uh, what, a, what a privilege we have to be part of that. So thanks, Walker. Let's all stand and hear our benediction. The good word of God uh, as we leave this place to serve Him uh, throughout our days. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Abba Father and the fellowship and transforming power of the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Amen.